1: You are listening to SPN, the Sports Podcasting Network.
0: Welcome to Scuderia F1, the podcast that's always up to speed with the latest Formula One news. Follow us on Twitter at f one pod and subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Daly and Kevin Laramay.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Happy Boxing Day to all Formula One fans in Canada and the United Kingdom and happy holidays to Formula One fans in all four corners of the globe. Boxing Day is an interesting holiday here in Canada. It's basically our equivalent of Black Friday down in the States. And although I won't be braving the crowds this afternoon and this morning at the the local Best Buy, I may wait online a little bit later on in the day to see if there's some uh, good deals to be had. But wherever you may be, I hope you've all been enjoying this holiday season. And let's get into the show for this week. Again, I'm going to dial it back over 25 years ago. And, well, what was happening 25 years ago in Formula One? Well, I think if you told anybody who's a newer fan to the sport that Williams were once the team to beat, they might look at you a little bit funny. But the truth is, although the team has struggled in recent years and haven't won since Pastor Maldonado's unlikely victory at the 2012 Spanish Grand Prix, they are ranked the third most winningest team in Formula One with 114 wins since they took to the track in 1978. Some of Williams' impressive stats include nine Constructors' Championships, seven Drivers' Championships, 128 pole positions, and 133 fastest laps. And to date, Williams has scored more than, get this, 3,500 World Championship points very impressive. The 80s and 90s were Williams' heyday. They won their first Constructors Championship way back in 1980 when Alan Dr- Jones took the Drivers' Championship in the Ford Cosworth-powered FW07. And their most recent World Championship was delivered by Jacques Villeneuve, one of our favorites here on the show, being a fellow Canadian, when Jacques won the World Championship in his Williams Renault FW17. But half the decade before Jacques joined the team, Williams were preparing to contest the 1998, Formula One World Championship with the one and only FW14B and even though that car took to the track over 25 years ago it is still considered one of the most advanced formula 1 cars ever designed and built and and raced and that is still when compared to the technical or the technological marvels that we see each and every day or each and every week here in the current era so the fw14b was powered by a 3.5 liter v10 renault rs3 engine and it was a development of the f w fourteen which was the car they entered in the nineteen ninety one But the story really dates back and starts several years earlier back in nineteen eighty seven Now that year, Williams won the Double Drivers and Constructors Championship, but they lost their Honda engines in three-time world champion Nelson Piquet at the end of the season when the Japanese manufacturer decided to exclusively supply McLaren and Lotus for 1988. It was a major, major issue for the team, who had four Constructors and three Drivers Championships since 1980, and they were unable to secure another top engine for the coming year. Having few options at the time, Williams were then forced to use the normally aspirated Judd CV engine for 1988... And it was a really massive disadvantage considering all their rivals at the time all had turbo-powered engines. And if any of you, uh, like myself, uh, can remember back that far, they actually had basically a dual world championship. They had all the top teams had turbo engines and the normally aspirated cars. They contested for something called the Jim Clark Cup. And it really was, it it was a tale of two Formula Ones. And, uh, it was a kind of a bizarre era if you think, uh, think about it. Anyways, in the wake of Piquet's defection to Lotus, William brought in Ricardo Petrezzi to partner with Nigel Mansell, but the season was a, a disappointment. After so many years of success in 1988, Williams failed to win a Grand Prix and finished only seventh in the World Championship. Thankfully, the disastrous partnership with Judd Engines lasted only a year, and for 1989, Williams would be powered by Renault, who were returning to the sport as an engine supplier. The Renault partnership was very successful for the team, and over the course of almost a decade, they would once again rise to the top of Formula One. With the powerful Renault RS1 powering the car for 1989, Williams finished second in the World Championship, but they were a very distant second to McLaren Honda, who, with drivers Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost, were the team to beat in the late 80s and the early 1990s. But in 1990, Williams regressed, with drivers Patrese and Thierry Bootson retiring a combined 10 times during the season as the team dropped two places to fourth in the Constructors' Championship. But those on the inside at Williams knew that their cars and engines were competitive, but the team was sadly not living up to expectations. So, to help try and get the team back to the top of Formula One, they brought in a promising young engineer by the name of Adrian Newey. Newey had earned a first class degree in aeronautics and astronautics from Southampton University in 1980, and then started working for Harvey Pothelswaite at the Fittipaldi Formula One team after he graduated. In 1981, Newey joined March and spent some time as a race engineer in Formula 2 and shortly thereafter began designing race cars. Newey's first car, the March GTP, was a very successful and won the IMSA GTP title two years in a row. In 1984, Newey then moved to March's IndyCar project, working as a designer and race engineer for Bobby Rahal. His IndyCar design, the March 85C, won the 1985 kart title, and in the hands of Danny Sullivan, won the 1985 Indy 500. It was a feat that would be repeated in the following year when Ray Hall won the kart title and Indy 500 driving the newly designed March 86 C. Adrian would then move to Craco and eventually Newman-Hass before being rehired by March in 1987 when his first Formula One car, the March 881, proved to be pleasantly, if somewhat not unexpectedly, competitive. By the time 1990 rolled around, March had become Leighton House Racing and the team's fortune were in sharp decline. Newey, who was by then the technical director of Leighton House, was then fired by the team midway through the season. He later recalled that although he had been fired by Leighton House, he had already been approached by Williams and had already made up his mind to leave and join the team. The switch to Williams from Leighton House was right for Newey. He was out of a situation where penny-pinching accountants were bleeding life out of the team to a team that had a bigger budget, better resources, and better drivers. Also at Williams at that time was technical director Patrick Head, and together Newey and Head would become one of Formula One's top design partnerships in the early 1990s. When Newey joined the team partway through the season, he entered a situation where neither Williams or Renault were satisfied with their underachieving of the previous two years. He immediately began work on designing the FW14, which would be the team's contender for the 1991 season. 1991 was full of hope for everyone involved. Behind the scenes, they had Hedden Newey in charge of the design, a powerful Renault engine, and a driver pairing of Ricardo Patrese and Nigel Mansell, who had just returned after two seasons with Ferrari. The FW14 was set to debut at the first race of the year at the U.S. Grand Prix in Phoenix, Arizona. The car was loaded with many technical innovations, including a carbon fiber and honeycomb composite structure chassis, pushrod suspension, and a brand new semi-automatic gearbox. Between the two of them, Mansell and Patrese won seven races that year, but early season reliability problems put them at a disadvantage, and they ended up losing the Drivers and Constructors Championships to Ayrton Senna and the reliable McLaren Honda MP4-6. It was a frustrating season, especially for Mansell, who retired several times due to gearbox issues while leading the race. For the 1992 season, Williams did further development to the FW14, adding active suspension and traction control to complement the much-improved semi-automatic gearbox. Active suspension is a system of keeping a car's ride height constant despite the undulations of a racetrack. Although active suspension was perfected by Williams in the early 90s, development began over a decade earlier with Lotus, and is seen by many in Formula 1 as the last great innovation by the legendary Colin Chapman. By 1987, Lotus had developed the active suspension well enough and had incorporated it into the 99T. Ayrton Senna was the first driver to test the car, and he gave it his uh, approval. The system worked and Senna drove the car to victory at the U.S. and Monaco Grand Prix. Starting in 1985, Williams began work on their own system, one that was simpler than Lotus's and one that used approximately 5 horsepower less to power. Unlike Lotus, Williams stuck with active suspension after 1987, trying to find performance advantages wherever they could after losing their Honda engines. During this era in Formula 1, it was difficult to truly unleash the full potential of active suspension for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was heavy, adding approximately 12 kilograms to the weight of the car, and the hydraulic pump needed to run the system drew power from the car's engine. Perhaps the biggest challenge in the 1980s was the lack of computing power available to process the data from the car. By 1991, however, computing power had greatly increased since the mid-1980s, and the act of suspension developed by Williams for the FW-14B could actually be pre-programmed to automatically adjust the car's attitude to compensate for changes in the elevations and bumps of a racetrack. When the system was installed in the FW-14B, Patrick Head would say that although the system had a predictive element, it was essentially responsive. Responsive meaning that the car did not have the same feel and roll stiffness as a standard car. On the track, this manifested as a momentary floaty feel on the entrance to a corner before the act of suspension stabilized the car. Nigel Mansell especially would use this new system to his advantage because he soon learned that after the first few tenths of a second before the car stabilized, there would be much more grip available to the car and it suited his aggressive driving style. The impact of the active suspension, the Renault 3.5-liter V10 RS3 engine, traction control, and much-improved semi-automatic gearbox was immediate. The car was actually available for the 1991 season finale in Adelaide, Australia, but bad weather prevented Williams from running the car in race conditions to assess its full potential. Once the car took to the track for its first race of the year at the US Grand Prix in Phoenix, it was clear it was much, much better than any of its competitors at the time. Mansell took the pole position for the race, beating rival Senna by nearly three-quarters of a second. The race was never in doubt for Mansell, who took the victory 24 seconds ahead of his teammate Patrese. The FW14B put Williams in a class of their own. Mansell set a blistering pace to start the season, winning the first five races of the year. Williams were regularly out qualifying other cars, and by the time Formula One rolled into Silverstone for the 1992 British Grand Prix in July, Mansell was nearly two seconds quicker than his teammate Patrese. He cruised home to an easy win 39 seconds ahead of his teammate, sparking off a frenzied celebration and track invasion by the British fans, which has become known as Mansell Mania and Formula One Lore. Mansell easily won the Drivers' Championship that season, clinching the title with a win at the 11th race of the season in Hungary. By the time the year was over, Mansell accrues to 108 points in the World Championship, which was nearly double to second-place Riccardo Petrezzi, who only had 56 points. Between them that year, Mansell and Patrese recorded 10 wins in the FW14, and Mansell's 9 wins in a season was a record at the time. In the Constructors' Championship that year, Williams was equally as dominant with 164 points by the end of the season, which was more than 65 points ahead of McLaren in second place. By 1993, it was clear that active suspension was an essential piece of technology for a team to be competitive in Formula One, but many teams complained of the sky-high price of development after designing and building their own system to try and close the gap to Williams. Despite the dominance of Mansell and Williams in 1992, there was an acrimonious split after the season and he then left the team. The hugely successful 14B was replaced by the FW15C for the 1993 season, which of course featured an active suspension system. The FW15C was actually available midway through 1994, but the 14B was so good that the introduction of the 15C, albeit modified at the last minute to comply with 1993 regulations, was delayed until after the 1994 season was over. Active suspension, which allowed for increasing cornering speeds, which was a big safety concern for the FIA. The concern was great enough that the FIA pressured the teams enough to accept a ban on active suspension for 1994. The FIA was so serious about banning the technology that at the 1993 Canadian Grand Prix, Steward's Bulletin No. 3 issued by Charlie Whiting stated that all cars with active suspension were in breach of technical regulations because the hydraulic rams of the active suspension systems were considered to be moving aerodynamic devices, which had been banned in Formula 1 for some time. Active suspension was indeed banned for 1994, but Williams still remained a Formula 1 powerhouse for the rest of the decade. By the time it was phased out in favour of the 15C, the FW14 and its predecessor FW14 had raced in 32 Grand Prix, winning 17 races and claimed 21 poles and 19 fastest laps. Mansell's 1992 World Championship was his one and only title in the sport, coming six years after he was so cruelly robbed of the championship when he suffered a punctured tire at the season finale in Australia. 1992 was also effectively the end of Mansell's competitive run in F1. Williams had not told Mansell that Prost had signed for 93 and the Englishman felt that he would be in an inferior position to Prost, as he had been when they were teammates at Ferrari a couple of years earlier. Additionally, Senna was also coming to the end of his contract at McLaren and had said publicly that he would like to drive for Williams and would even do so for no salary. Williams revoked their offer letter to Mansell and with no other drives available at any other top teams for 1993, Mansell decided to move on rather than be teammate to Prost for a second time. Another late offer was made to Nigel at the 1992 Italian Grand Prix But by that time, the damage was irreparable, and Mansell had decided to retire from Formula One at the end of the year. He would later return to Williams briefly at the end of the 1994 season, and would retire for good from F1 as a McLaren driver partway through 1995. And there you go, that very brief history of one of the most amazing Formula One cars, and if uh, you were around in those days or have gone back and watched some of those old races, it was uh, absolutely spectacular. I mean, all credit to uh, some of the dominant teams that we've seen in the more more recent era, Ferrari, uh, of course, in the early 2000s. Uh, McLaren, of course, have had their time. Also, um, uh, Mercedes, of course, uh, Red Bull. But that uh, 1992 season uh, was uh, was absolutely uh, incredible. Uh, and that was uh, one hell of a car that, uh, that Williams had uh, designed mind. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, this brief episode. We'll be back again uh, next week. Uh, there are uh, several videos that I found uh, online on YouTube, and I've linked to those in the, in the show notes if you want to go check them out there. And that's it. I hope you enjoy the rest of your holiday season, and uh, Happy New Year's. Of course, 2019 is only a couple of days away, and uh, we'll be back again this time next week to pick it up. And uh, I've got another special episode up my sleeve, so we'll talk to you then. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the Scuderia F1 Podcast. If you want to get the show notes for this episode, then head over to scuderiaf1pod.com. Want to get in touch with us? Then email us at scuderiaf1pod at gmail.com.
1: You were listening to SPN, the Sports Podcasting Network. Visit us, sportspodcastingnetwork.com.